Welcome to Say Hello to the Bad Guy. I'm your host, Locke, and let me introduce my guest host first with us today. We got Dan. What up? And then also with us today for the first time ever on the show, we're real excited Longtime supporter of the podcast, all the way from across the pond, we got David Breakspear. Uh, hi, everybody, and it's an absolute pleasure. It's just, yeah, it's such a delight to be on the show. So, thank you for inviting me. Guys. So, hey, thank you. I feel like this made us more legitimate. Now we have international <laughs> guests. <laughs> it's not just us dudes in a basement no more. <laughs> So a quick rundown on some of David Breakspear's uh, accomplishments and some of the stuff he's working on. You could correct me on some of them because you have so much going on. It's hard to keep track of all of them. But <laughs> so he's a writer and researcher at nationalcrimesyndicate.com. He's a contributing author on the best new true crime stories, well-mannered crooks, rogues, and criminals. He's a host of the What Can Be podcast co-host of the wise guys hideaway podcast with ian and rob which uh, i like a lot as one of my it's one of my favorites and then he's also a prison reform activist and a poet so i think does that cover most of it or did i miss that'll it? do that'll do yeah that'll do <laughs> i'm quite busy i keep myself busy that's what it's all been about though it's sort of been about providing purpose for my life and i get a lot of purpose out of the reform work and i'll get a hell of a lot of purpose and enjoyment from from the work within the organized crime kind of world and i believe we call that a renaissance man that's like a little bit of everything in there that'll do for me that'll do for me <laughs> i've been called a lot worse <laughs> <laughs> so you can always follow dave on uh, his instagram what's the instagram what can be too and then you got the website it's journey of a reform man.com correct dot net dot net journey of a reform man dot net and he's just got all kinds of content out there, a little bit of what you want. If you're into, you know, some of the prison reform stuff, he's doing a lot of great work with that. If you're into the gangster stuff, he's doing a ton of that. So go check out some of his stuff. But it's uh, it's great to have you on, man. We've uh, we've been talking for a long time about different gangsters and stuff like that. And uh, you've always been a big supporter of the show. So we're glad to finally have you on. No, thank you very much, Doc. When I, I first come across, ages ago now, I can't remember when it was now. No, it was a long time ago. But when I first come across you guys, it was just, yeah, I, I love the show. Dan, I love, absolutely love Dan. Love yourself as well. But um, I've I, I just got a lot of love and respect for you guys, the bad guys. And But, yeah, most importantly, you and Dan. So it's, it's even more of an honour to be here with you both. So, yeah, it's just... Um, I love it. I mean, this this is something that I've wanted to do. So just as much as you kind of wanted me on, it's it's something I've wanted to do as well. And uh, I wanted to give a quick shout out to DC because he was going to be on this episode today, but he had something that came up at the last minute. It, it is what it is. <laughs> Life happens. Today, to kind of cover the time difference, we're recording a little bit earlier than we normally would. And at first I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to drink. It's a little bit earlier. But then I figured, for one, it's a holiday weekend. And two, we got on David Breakspear. So fuck it you know what i mean <laughs> i myself need a no justification it was just a drink all right listen the pubs are always open somewhere across the world no matter the time 
Yeah, we have a phrase here in America. I don't know if it's in England, but it's five o'clock somewhere. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, today I'll go. I'll go first. I made some coffee. We got Pacheris Brothers Coffees, which is locally roasted here in Highland Park. But then I hit it with some of that uh, Spalding's liqueur out of Ann Arbor Distillery. So a lot of our listeners, if you don't know, Ann Arbor is where U of M's based at. So it's real kind of a hipstery kind of town, but they have a lot of great breweries and distilleries and Ann Arbor Distilling. They make all their stuff with locally sourced ingredients. It's barely like even drinking liquor. So there's a good chance I might end up sloshed in the morning, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah, Ann Arbor is just a huge college town, which translates into a huge booze town. <laughs> and for those that don't know, Ann Arbor does the yearly uh, hash bash on 420. It's a big uh, cannabis uh, center. There's really like weed was decriminalized there and you could smoke there before you could in the rest of the state. Michigan's a recreational state now, but a lot of people will forget Ann Arbor was way ahead of the curve on that because they were doing the hash bash. I mean, for decades now, I think back like to the 60s and 70s. So, yeah, I don't get I don't understand that. I mean, I, I thought it's been decriminalized quite a, a lot across of quite a few states in America. And yet they're banning athletes for testing positive. What's that about? It's either decriminalized or it's not. And, and who's going to be, I mean, who's going to worry about an athlete smoking weed? Let's be honest, you'll be like, yeah, smoke more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you say, boat on weed. You ain't doing nine seconds, 100 meters. <laughs> that, that is not a, that's not a performance enhancing drug at all. No, no, no. You'd be starting for chicken halfway through, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> so Dave, uh, you, you're having a beer today too, right? Would you bring the drink? I I certainly am, and and this is very stereotypical probably in the UK, but I'm actually drinking instead of Artois, um, which, following over 600 years of Belgian brewing expertise, is brought to life in a beautifully balanced lager with a flavoured taste and a clean finish. Stella Artois is meant to be savoured. There you go. That's their words, not mine. But it is a good beer, actually, and um, unfortunately it does come with uh, a bit of stigma attached to it. It's uh, the drink of the yobs, if you like. It's no, also known as uh, uh, Stella Actor Twat. <laughs> <laughs> it's the drink of the, what did you say? Hooligans. <laughs> oh, okay. No, it's not. It was, do you know what, right? Um, up until we had a program in the UK called Men Behaving Badly. It was a sitcom. Um, and up until that point, the only kind of beer that you used to see in the streets was Harp and Fosters and Forex and things like that. And they kind of made Stella Artois a lad thing. Um, and it just grew from there. And, and funny enough, it's quite relevant to what we're going to be speaking about in a bit. But it's the, the TV kind of created this image behind Stella. Um, and unfortunately, people took that image on. Uh, and it, it become it become a drink that I don't know whether or not the drink defined the behaviour or the media defined the behaviour from the drink. Um, so therefore people felt they had to act a certain way because that's apparently what you do do on that drink. Yeah, I would say uh, given the history of the media propaganda, it's definitely they were they were perpetrating that. Definitely. Well, I mean, it could always be one of those things that's kind of like the Godfather where it's art imitating life, imitating art, imitating life, and it just at some point it turns into a crazy circle. Oh, you are so setting me up for the beginning of this conversation when we start getting into it. <laughs> and you don't even know yet. So, Dan, why don't you, uh, what do you got to drink today? Well, I got, uh, it's Revolutionary Brewery. Wow, I can speak. Revol- 
Revolution Brewing. They're from uh, Chicago, which I try to keep it local. But since we're going international, Chicago is pretty local to us. <laughs> and then it's the uh, Hazy Hero. Because I have a theory that I uh, 2021 is going to be the year of the hazy beers. It seems like a lot of uh, pale ales and stuff are coming out with their hazes this year. So, you know, I'm a basic bitch. I'm just going to follow the trends. So I just went with it. But uh, it's pretty good. I enjoy a hazy beer. So, And since this is only audio, you guys don't get the video. Uh, Dan is also recording this podcast from his porch. So he's just over here Detroit as fuck today. I was going to do it outside, but uh, they're working on the house next door. And the construction noise ain't bad, but every five minutes, this old man comes out from the basement singing to himself. So, <laughs> What's he singing, Dan? I don't know. It, it's mumble singing. He's like, Love it. All right, so... Like always, before we get started, we got to make sure we take the time to thank Sixfo Swaino for letting us use his music in the intro. Um, we got to thank Cancer for letting us use his music in the mid-roll. You can follow them at it's on Instagram, Sixfo, it's uh, F-O-E. And then Cancer is Cancer the God at Instagram. The E is a three. And he's got a new song that he just dropped, Cocaine Jaw. You can get that on Bandcamp. You can buy it for a buck. I mean, it's a buck. Throw him a buck. Listen to the song. And he promised he promised on this show that every dollar guaranteed to end up in someone's thong. So it's money well spent. <laughs> but we'll go ahead and get started. And today we're going to be covering the black hand. This ain't negotiation time. This is Scarface. Final scene. Fucking bazookas under each arm. Say hello to my little friend. So when we had David on. I had to kind of figure because most of the time the guests don't know much about the topic that we're covering. But He's a freaking researcher at nationalcrimesyndicate.com, so I didn't know if we'd be able to throw a fastball by him. So I figured instead we'd lean into it and go with something that he's done a lot of research. It's a topic he knows a lot about, and it's something that's often uh, misrepresented. There's a lot of myths and legends. Some of them, I think we might have said some bullshit on this podcast a couple times. You know, the more research you do, the more you learn, and then some of the times you're like, ah, I kind of said some fucked up shit. No, we always get our facts straight. It's... <laughs> This podcast is not bullshit or bollocks. <laughs> Love it. Now, the reason I want to have Dan on with this one is where David's like kind of a legitimate black hand expert. Dan literally only knows the bullshit that I've told him on the show. So he's like our resident <laughs> black hand expert just from uh, the episodes that he's been on. And yeah, I'm not a freaking researcher. I'm just a researcher. I'm not up to the freaking... But we did cover a couple episodes. Some of the guys we covered that are involved in the Black Hand, you can listen to the Giuseppe Morello episode. We did a Frankie Yale episode. And then Wild Bill Lovett was the white hander. So it crosses into there too. So you can always check those out if uh, you wanted to hear some more about it. You can listen to it and see whatever shit we said wrong that David's about to correct. And uh, (laughs) shoot us us an email. But before we get into Dave and get some official stories, Dan, why don't you kind of lead us off with your helicopter view of what the Black Hand is? Well, I, I was very peripherally, like, knew about the mob and stuff through you because you love to talk about it. But now that uh, we do it kind of amateurish for the world to hear, I learned about the Black Hand, which 
I just thought that's what the mob did. I didn't know there was a name for the extortion that they did, which was pretty much, you know, hey, here's this black hand. That means give me money or I'm going to fuck your shit up. But then I started doing a little bit more research, and it's a weird thing where it got convoluted where the black hand is also that extortion technique, like a specific type of crime, but it was also just referred to as gangs. Like there's the black hand street gang that started that stuff. And a lot of people see like the black hand was the mob before they were called the mob. There's just a lot of stuff that like uh, Locke said, the more you research, it sort of contradicts itself. But in general, the black hand is them saying like, all right, we want a piece of your business. Now, they wouldn't openly threat. They'd give you like a card with a threat and shit and it would have a black hand on it. So you knew like there was almost like the calling card of, oh, this shit's serious. It's not just an idiot. Like it's a black hand. Like shit just got real. Mm-hmm. So it pretty much says like, hey, give me a cut or I'm going to fuck you up. Like uh, I was just listening earlier to a podcast where the whole Chicago crime scene, as we know it with uh, John Turturro, who came with Johnny uh, yeah, I always fuck his name. <laughs> you know, that's why you're here. You know what I mean? Uh, John Turturro, that's that actor from Rounders. Yeah, word. Uh, but the whole Chicago scene started because the Black Hand fucked with Big Jim Calissimo. Did I get that one right? Yeah. Ah, yeah. fucking nailed it. Uh, and so he went through and battled the Black Hand and shit, and that's what helped the... Uh, whole Chicago mob, because they were fucking with Big Jim's, uh, they wouldn't fuck with Jim, Big Jim directly, this is the way the black hand worked, they would just start beating up all of his uh, prostitutes so that his brothel would go under, they'd start fucking with customers, they would just fuck with your business, not just straight up fuck you up, they would just take away your livelihood, so that it's not like as much of a fuck, I'll take them on straight up, it's a even if I think I could be, they're just going to fuck me up to the point it's easier just to pay them off. It's almost like settling out of court. Like you might win, it might be a frivolous lawsuit, but it's a lot easier just to pay them off and let it be. Just That's settle out of court. If that made any sense. So David's done a bunch of research and he's sitting over there like a kid in a candy store ready to uh, <laughs> <laughs> bust out whatever he's been sitting on. I know you've uh, said you've read some new stuff uh, recently. So uh, what do you, what are your thoughts? Um, well, um, like you mentioned, fortunately, like you mentioned, it's and Dan's not far off. And hey, Dan, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, no, and the thing was, you started off really well, Dan, because you started off mentioning extortion. And then you kind of, as you went on, you started talking about the Black Hand as a group. And I think that's where the mistakes come into it, the Black Hand were never a group like the American Mafia, the New York families, the uh, Colombo, the Genovese, whatever. They weren't a group as such like that. But something that's crossed over between the two, um, obviously in respect to my reform work, is there was a guy who back in 1970, so I do just as much research in the reform criminal justice world as what I do in the Mafia world. And there was a guy, Stanley Cohen. Uh, he was born in South Africa, Johannesburg. He's so and he defined the five stages of moral panic as one, something or someone is defined as a threat to the values or the interests. Two, this threat is depicted in an easily recognizable form by the media. 
Three, there is a rapid build-up of public concern. Four, there is a response from authorities or opinion makers. And five, the panic recedes or results in social changes. And when you look back at the history of the immigration to America from the Italian, you can very much see how the black hand myth come with it. And even though, as Dan was saying about the symbiology and everything else that's associated with it, it was, I believe, an American journalist that was writing for an Italian newspaper. Um, now, if before I get onto that bit, if you remember the uh, term for protection racket, it's PITSO. So basically, the Black Hand extortion racket was no different to PITSO. It was bought over, it dates back apparently, this kind of extortion racket dates back to Sicily to around 1770, um, which I suppose you can look back and say that is where the overall mafia existed because North and South Italy hated each other. They still do. The North looked down on the South and Sicily was very much the arse end of Italy. That was the dumping ground of Italy. And if you look at the history of the area, they were Roman, Greek, Byzantine, uh, Ottoman. So they were taken over by basically the English, the Germans. They, so they, they had all these people taken over Italy and Sicily was run by all these different rulers. So Sicily never really trusted the mainland. So Sicily began to start looking after its own affairs. And that's where you start getting the organised crime in respect of the bosses, the landowners. A few laws were changed, which made it even easier for these landowners to become barons. And then they travelled over to the mainland and other people started running their lands for them. So that's where your underbosses can see the heirs are coming from. So you had all that going on. And, and with that was the pizza, which was the protection money, protection racket. And this was picked up, if you kind of believe the research and believe the history, and, and when we do a lot of research, it's kind of a lot of blind faith goes into the research, especially when you're going back hundreds of years. And it kind of takes us back to the prisons of Italy, where there was, it was around about the late 1800s, where people were getting banged up. But what they were doing, they were moving these members, these gang members, these serious criminals, to another area of Italy. Um, and they weren't allowed back home again. So when they were getting released, they were getting released to the local area. So it's quite easy for these organisations, which were based on the Sicilian Mafia, for these organisations such as the Camorra and Endlangheta um, to be created within the prisons of Italy. Uh, and that's where it basically come about. So the Pizzo is, or the Black Hand, should I say, is the extortion racket that is carried out mainly from the Camorran. Um, from Naples, the Camorra. Obviously, you had the Calabrians, which is the Andangata, and of course, the Sicilians as well with themselves. And But what they've done is when the, obviously, everyone started coming over from Italy, all the criminals started coming over as well. They were running away from certain, because again, the, the North were always on. That's why you don't see any mafia in the North. It was, it's hardly ever existed in the North. It's always been in the South. It's and again, that's where I suppose the oppressed people were. And, and that's where you find a lot of crime comes from. You don't find crime happening in the posh areas from the posh people, do you? It's always those that are being trodden down. And the southern Italians, especially the Sicilians, were very much trodden on by the northern Italians historically, even since, as I say, well, I think it was, what was it, 1881, the unification of Italy. So there's a lot of historic stuff that goes with that. And with that is symbiology, because it's quite a, a Catholic country. It's quite a religious country. And, and obviously, religion comes with its symbiology. So this 
American journalist writing for an Italian newspaper had this case where someone basically was being extorted. They were someone being kidnapped and, and he was just getting a few columns. He was just a staff writer. He wasn't anyone special. The big time journalist obviously would get all the space. And he decided to embellish the story. And that's when he added the black hand and other symbiology to the letter that he said was sent out. So he's actually an American journalist who gave it the name, where the name Black Hand come from. And as what's his name himself, Cobbins himself says that the threat is depicted in an easily recognisable form by the media. So once the media starts picking up and starts creating this, this imagery that's going on from this organisation called the Black Hand, everyone started believing the Black Hand were an actual organisation. When it wasn't, it was just peasant Italians that had come over, criminal Italians that had come over, that were extorting money from people that were working. They didn't do it amongst their own. They were doing it to people that were working or people that had a lot of money. There was that famous story about the opera singer whose name um, um, slips me. But, yeah, so there you go. (laughs) There's a lot to say. I just didn't want to interrupt you on that. You're on a roll. Right. Yeah, sorry. I did, did go on with a bit of a roll there. I loved it. I wish I had a notebook. I would have been jotting down notes. I'm glad this is recorded. That's a good sum up of the base of where it came from, comes from. And I think, so when we look at some of the stuff like that we've even said on the podcast, we were closer than we thought. So when we say, like we said, it dated back to Naples in the 1750s. Yes, extortion as a racket, the way they were doing it is. So that's kind of like note one I have is it's a racket, not a gang, you know, so... Yeah extortion as a racket comes back like you said in that style back to naples but then what we know as the black hand which we say came over from sicily was kind of an american controversy of the of the way of what they were already doing Hmm. the opera tenor that you kind of touched on there's a guy that was enrico caruso that's him yep and uh he, he got hit with a black hand note and paid $2,000. And then the second he paid $2,000, he got all kinds of black hand letters from all kinds of different people running black hand scams. And he got like, they asked him for like $15,000, including the people he'd already gave 2000 to. He let them know he was a mark. They were like, oh, this guy's easy. Because I, I researched um, the black hand a, a while ago, and I've done a story in the black hand, and I found something that was printed a year after the death of Joseph Petrosino, um, after he was murdered in Palermo, in the Cosm- it was a 1902 edition, I think, of, of Cosmopolitan. And it opens up with a dread reality to Italians terrorised by the menace of the name in attempts to extort blackmail, but a myth so far as an organised society is concerned. A cable grand from Italy announces with beautiful bre- brutal brevity that Joseph Petrosino, chief of the Italian Bureau of the New York Secret Police, had been assassinated on the streets of Palermo. It's just, it was, um, as I say, it was a report into his death, but it, it was the one that also speaks, it was this story, or this article in the 1902 edition of Cosmopolitan, where the guy says that it is almost ludicrous to realise how the name that is now a world terror was invented. Some years ago, the story of an Italian murder was running in the New York newspaper. The police made little headway and developments lagged. The space writer on a certain morning paper needed more money than the story was bringing him. He could get more space only by giving a new twist to the crime, 
by working up an exclusive angle. The victim of this murder had received a letter warning him that death would follow his failure to contribute a specific sum by a certain date. At the top of the sheet was a crude drawing of a fist holding a long, wicked-looking dagger. It was drawn with black ink, a sombre, a sombre, a sombre, sinister emblem. For the reporter, it held an idea. The name Black Hand leapt from his imagination. And there you are. With great circumstantial detail and flaring heads, he introduced, he introduced his find to the public. When you build up the myth, once they let out that this, this black hand technique was a big thing, then everyone started taking it serious. And like by the end, there's like a famous case of a kidnapping in New Orleans where they kidnapped someone who wanted ransom and put the black hand in the corner where the black hand almost became, like I said, or like it was just a sign to let you know they're serious. Like at yeah. that point, it's kidnapping. Like you already wrote the ransom note. Like that's the same thing. They just use the black hand, not as a symbol of extortion, not as a symbol of like the mafia or any sort of thing like that. They strictly put it on the note to let you know, like, hey, it's black hand. So you should know we're serious. Like it became something different than the actual black hand technique as we know it of extortion. And historically, Neapolitans and Sicilians have never got on. And I believe it was New Orleans where they set up White Hand, which was a group of Sicilian organised crime members. Uh, I can't remember the names of them, and I don't think there are many names that are, are registered alongside the White Hand. And they weren't, allowed, they, they weren't around for long, but their sole aim was to bring the extortion racket of the Camorra, of the Neapolitans, to an end. And that's the, that's the way they saw it. And so they worked with law enforcement, you know, the Sicilian Mafia, in the early days in New Orleans, working with law enforcement to bring down the Camorra and, and, and this black hand that um, uh, was... And, and it's quite funny as well, the way they write about um, the Mafia and, and the Camorra from back then is they are separate. They, they don't name the Andalangata as that. They call them the uh, Calabrian. Um, mm-hmm. But in respect to the Camorra, uh, but they separate the mafia. It's as if, like, there you've got the mafia is the Sicilian mafia, uh, Cosa Nostra, and then you've got the Camorra, which is obviously the Neapolitans, and then you've got Andalangata, which uh, uh, is the, the Calabrians. And then, of course, you've got the other smaller kind of mafia well, families as well. Well, I say right now, uh, Camorra needs to get their a new publicist because La Cosa Nostra, whoever, whatever ad agency they went with, they got way bigger. You know what I mean? The Costa well, Nova is synonymous with mob. No one talks about the Camorra. No, exactly. And, and it, well, no one really was talking about Endlangata until quite recently. Um, and obviously now you've got the Maxi trial going on in Italy um, with the Endlangata uh, members. They're supposed to be embedded in quite a lot of European countries. They're embedded in uh, Australia, over in the US as well. They're very much into drugs. And, and they come from a background of cigarette, uh, which is the same as the Camorra, which grew in the prisons. And when they come out, they, they were all cigarette uh, smugglers. That's, that's basically all they did at the beginning. And then it just with power. But then the Sicilian Mafia, it was, I think, 1985, I believe it was, that the government finally admitted that there was a, an issue with someone called the Sicilian Mafia. And that was when Riena 
um, that just who I see as a terrorist. I don't see him as an organised criminal. I see him as a terrorist. Um, he was the beginning of the end, I think, uh, for, the, for the actual Cosa Nostra mafia. And that enabled, I suppose, and Delengita and the Camorra to come to the forefront. And then, of course, you've got um, Gamora, um, which uh, the series on Netflix from, what's his name, Roberto Saviano, uh, who wrote the book. That brought the Camorra out a little bit more as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I, I find a lot more interest back in home, no, back in Italy, back in Sicily than I do in America. I prefer going all that way back. I think Andragada could probably be the biggest organization internationally in the world now. I mean, they've really uh, stepped up and kind of dominated. They're a huge organization. It's kind of, mm-hmm. you know, the old dripping weather, uh, dripping water weathers the rock. You know, they might have never been the biggest, but they were always at it. They're always consistent. And then at some point, you just find yourself at the top of the heat. But I think it's kind of funny how you said, like, the Kimura needs, like, a better publicist. We actually covered that a little bit. It was in, like, the 19, like, the late teens, I believe it was. The Kimura actually had a pretty big stronghold in America, in Brooklyn, on, like, Coney Island. And then they kind of had that big war with, uh, what was the Morello family, but it was more the Terranova brothers, I believe. That was, you know, Manhattan or Italian Harlem, I think they were from. And that was, you know, the Sicilians. And when the Morello family kind of took out a lot of them and then kind of took over Brooklyn, that's when the mafia, as we know it, you you know, started to kind of move in that direction. Had that war gone a different way, we might know more about the Camorra nowadays. But to the victor goes the spoils. You know what I mean? Yeah, uh, exactly. They get to write history. Yeah. See, if yeah. uh, if only when they were smuggling cigarettes, they would have started uh, the Brown Fingers. <laughs> if they would have started that, they could have been big, bigger than the Black Hand. They just they didn't they knuckles. Go. But you I had mean, to civilize. They, they, if you look back, the the first kind of immigration into America from Italy come from mainland before it come from Sicily. So the Camorra were very much, obviously, being Naples as well, they, they very much had the first bite of the cherry in Italy, uh, sorry, in America. And as did Endelangata as well. I mean, Endelangata have been going since the, the kind of, however, you, you can kind of really research it and look back to the 16th century with Osso, Machoso and Casanostro, whatever his name was, the, the, the three Spanish knights. But uh, I, I just find it so interesting looking back to the very, very early days. And when you look at things like the Black Hand as well, how I suppose easily it was to be able to extort your fellow Italian, especially Southern Italian, because it was kind of, I suppose it was like a tax. It was no different from the government taking tax from you. It's just that organised crime was illegal and the government's legal. That's the only difference from what I see. And, and they, they provide you the same protection and exactly the same way you pay your taxes. You kind of get protected by the government. If you don't pay your taxes, you end up in jail. If you don't pay your taxes with the mafia, you end up out of business and probably in the morgue. So, and let's be honest, the mafia probably makes more money than governments as well. So <laughs> I just, I, I, I just, I love everything. I, I don't glorify it. But I just find it absolutely fascinating how mafias are able to grow, and especially in respect to America, if you look at Prohibition, and after Prohibition and, the, the, if you like, the rebuild of America, 
Um, I, I would have thought 8% of New York's concrete mafia-based. Um, so it's just, they, they went from being the security guards for politicians to the politicians being their puppets in, in, mm. through prohibition. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what strengthened the American mafia, prohibition. So on prohibition, I kind of feel like prohibition was the, because if you look at the black hand, as we know it or whatever, it starts to fall off around the early twenties. You know, you still have some stories here or there and it's not, these criminals didn't stop being criminals. It's just when prohibition hits now, instead of focusing on just getting a couple bucks from this business and this business, now you have this cash cow and around the same time you have more people starting to organize, you know, these looser gangs. So since it was a racket, extortion didn't go nowhere. It's just these people that would have had a, been a black hand operator now just falls in and they still kind of pick up that extortion, but now they're not, they're not sending cheesy letters. People just know when you make your regular pickups, but in the meantime, the real money is in prohibition. It's in distributing, mm-hmm. it's in importing. So it just became a part of a bigger thing. So it was, I feel like it's like one of the steps, one of the pieces of Voltron that puts together the mafia as we know it today would be, you got this black hand gang and then you got this thing and then you got, and then all of them together, they all kind of became the mafia as we know it. But I think prohibition is where it started to kind of turn into like, all right, well, there's more money in this. Like, you know, we're going to go, go grab this 15 bucks from the shopkeeper or, we're going to fucking make thousands and thousands of dollars on liquor. Mm, yeah, 100%. And if, if, you, if you look back, I mean, for me, the birth in America, I mean, yes, you've got, I suppose, the, the, the gangs of New York, which based on a true story. Mm-hmm. For me, it's, it was New Orleans. Uh, that was where it all began for me. And at the beginning, it was, the, I suppose, uh, the ragtag Camorra that were first over into America uh, before Sicilian Mafia. And the, they, they, were, they weren't as, as, as business-like as the Sicilians. Don't forget, the Sicilians had, in one aspect, had their own country in, with Sicily. So it was, it wasn't so, it was kind of, they were the government, whereas the Camorra were just street gangs. Um, I, I'm really trying to not put myself on the same list as Saviano and get a bullet in the back. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like why why warlords weren't able to take over the Roman Empire because one is yeah. this big organized hierarchy and the other one is just random, you know, clans or tribes. And it's not that they're not badass; they're just in, unorganized and individualized. So yeah, the Roman Empire rolls you the fuck over. You know, it's kind of yeah, like it, that. But that there structure. you go. Yeah, but. But there you go. That's why in the, just before Prohibition, the politicians were rolling over all these gangs. They were saying to these gangs, listen, we need you to do us a favour. We we take a blind eye at what you're up to, but when it comes to the vote, you make sure that I win. And, and that's, but what happened was with Prohibition and over the years that followed after that, the mafia got too powerful. They were the ones that then started saying to the politicians, listen, it ain't going to work like that no more. You now work for me. The judges, you now work for us. The police, you now work for us. If it wasn't for Prohibition and the Mafia, what the Mafia were doing through, the, through Prohibition, I don't think America would have got through the, the Depression. Um, 
it was the mafia money that, that kind of reinvigorated America again. But once those, like you said there about it, it was all of these warlords, and it was exactly the same. You had all the warlords, but Prohibition, they started coming, hold on a minute, we don't need to fight together. If we work together, we can double our profit. If we fight together, we're going to get 10% of what we can earn, and we're going to lose this, and we're going to lose men, and we're going to do... So they started working together. So you started getting all these avenues and all these, these connections made up so that when Prohibition finished, well, we've got all these avenues and pathways open. What are we going to do now? Drugs. Boom. And then, and then drugs were next. And then the drugs from, and like they're going about, uh, oh, families don't sell drugs. Lucky Luciano, from the very early days, the, the American method, the New York Five families were built on drugs. They were built on the back of drugs. So, yeah, it's prohibition. If you kind of was a conspiracy theorist, you would say that that was just, and I think America struggled ever since with corruption. I really do. I, I just ever since prohibition, it's just been just corruption all the way. <laughs> well, I mean, personally, I don't like some from England talking shit about the stars and stripes right now. <laughs> but you are absolutely correct. So whatever, but. You're right. But on Fourth of July thing. weekend, God damn! I know, <laughs> God damn. We just shut up. I, I love America. Right I love Americans. No, what did I? We can't. We can't. We can't be responsible for the crimes of our grandparents and our great grandparents, right. can we? You know, we don't have to apologize. No, I'm shit. just. I'm just fucking. With I, it's just when you have. Nah, it's when you have a fat friend and you always make fun of them. Somebody else comes around and calls them fat. You're like, yo, what the fuck's up? Uh, I love America. I love America. Nah, yeah, but now nah, forgive me because I might go on a little bit of a rant here because you hit on it a couple times, but uh. What it comes down to is United States, we've said a lot of times, the government has ripped off the mob. They stole the lottery. They stole a lot of shit. Like, I can't think of all the uh, examples, and I have proven it a long time ago. In fact, uh, there's a cool shirt that uh, I think part of the Problem podcast sells. It's like a a baronet hand with the thing, and uh, it says uh, the state under it because they are the mafia now. It's like a mafia logo, but it's the state. Because they stole all of the things from the mob. And what they like is the monopoly on violence. That's what it comes down to. That's why Irish people are notoriously cops from the five points and stuff. Because they didn't like the, the Italians. So they made them cops to make it legalized violence. And they continue it today. But during Prohibition... And even today in the drug field, I mean, we're from Detroit, a notoriously corrupt and just very violent city. It's what we do in the Midwest. Yeah. If cops aren't there and the police, once again, they have the monopoly on violence, that that builds a vacuum where other people are competing for the monopoly on violence. And that's why, as you said, the uh, state started using the mob. Because at that time, that's what they became, was the mob, because it controlled large groups of people. That's why today, the mafia might still be here in some ways, but the mob isn't there. Because the government eventually closed up a lot of those loopholes, regained that monopoly on violence, so you don't control the people now. Even though the mafia is a thing and does things, they don't have the control of the people. And when you look at how the mob started, the mafia started in their neighborhoods where the cops weren't there, where 
the cops, the corruption was there. So they started building their own monopoly on violence, the extortion. I'll fuck you up if you don't give me money, which as you compared it to is taxes. And that's how it all began. And in prohibition, they, they created a big vacuum. And the mob once again said, hey, we'll help you guys out. They saw a demand, they had a supply, and they made a bunch of money. And then the big part of shutting down prohibition was the IRS and those agents being able to go smash, fuck everything up, you know, in the name of the state and regain control. And eventually they gave up and just said, fuck it, you guys can get drunk because mm. fucking America, baby. <laughs> Woo! Oh, hey, so we used to talk about the rackets, how you kind of said, uh, you know, it was prohibition and then drugs was next. One thing I always, when we talk about forward thinking gangsters, one of my all time favorites, Tony Accardo, you know, when you look at prohibition, oh. where Tony Accardo finally kind of got started in prohibition and everybody's like, oh, prohibition's the big racket. And he was like, well, I'm kind of big in gambling. And then prohibition goes away and they're all like, oh, it's a uh, labor racketeering. And he was like, all right, well, I'm good at gambling. And then they went on to drugs and no matter what. And from the late 20s to like the fucking 80s, Tony Accardo built a fucking empire out of Chicago off of gambling. Yeah, and a lot of people seem to forget that um, Chicago had Las Vegas. It was theirs. They controlled it. It's Tony Accardo, whoever. I just love the Chicago outfit. Um, for me, they, they, they just, they epitomize everything organized crime was about. And they just controlled everything. Chicago was theirs. In the 1950s, from, from after Capone up until, I mean, even Giacana. I mean, Giacana, it depends how you look at it. I mean, for me, I always see him as a front boss. I never see him as a, an actual boss. I don't believe he was the ever actual boss. I believe that was, that was jointly held by Paul Ricker uh, and uh, Tony Accardo for, uh, in the same way as Tony Salerno was with the Genovese and uh, whilst Giganti was, was boss. I, and I, I really do believe that Giancana was the same. I agree. And, uh, but a, apart from Giancana, who was more about ego, I, I just love the Chicago outfit. I just think there's, there, there's so much to, and you mentioned about uh, Mrs. Zerato's book, The Best New True Crimes for Manic Crooks and Criminals. Yes, I've got it out in one go. Go me! <laughs> um, I cover the Chicago outfit in there. It, the, the story of the Marlboro Diamond, which is where two of the Chicago outfit come over to London. Um, so it just, yeah, the Chicago outfit for me, I suppose the stories, the fact being greater than the fiction, it's always Chicago outfit. Yeah, definitely. So a couple, before we wrap it up, there's a couple like uh, these guys that are known as black hand guys that I want to cover a little bit. And then one of them, I think it kind of shows the impact that have actually the black hand had on what we know as the mafia today. But I think kind of the most famous black hand operator was Ignazio Sayedi, aka Lupo the Wolf. That was the character that Don Finucci in Godfather 2 was kind of based on. And he was Giuseppe Morello's brother-in-law too. So where Giuseppe Morello was, he was actually made on the other side and kind of brought that over here. And then he partnered up with this guy that had the extortion thing. And that was kind of the basis for putting together the Morello family, which turns into the Luciano family, which today is the Genovese family. And it's probably the most powerful of, you know, the families in America. And from Naples, 
and from Naples. So it's it's it has its the Genovese, regardless of uh, Luciano, but the Genovese has its history steeped in Naples, their Camorra. So um, funny enough, the Genovese are my family. They're my favourite of the five families. <laughs> um. You know, even though most of the mobsters are Sicilian, a lot of the big guys, when you think about it, are, you know, Neapolitan. Uh, Capone was Neapolitan. John Gotti was Neapolitan. Uh, and there was a lot of hatred between the two. Um, I think Castellano was Sicily because mm-hmm. uh, they were cousins with the Gambinos. And I'm at Car- I think Carlo Gambino was only 16 when he was made. And then he came over, he was the real men of honor, they were called, weren't they? Same as yeah. uh, uh, Banano. Uh, and he come over at 19. Uh, see, for me, I see it as if Gambino come over and ended up being exactly who he was meant to be, why he come over, if that makes sense. He was sent over with a purpose. If you take a step back with Gambino, he was sent over to take control of the mafia situation or the organised crime situation in America. Uh, and I think if you look at his reign, he was very successful in doing that. I was it? When Castellano took over, I think it was something like $500 million a year they were bringing in. And you mentioned earlier when you were kind of comparing the Mafia to the Camorra, how you said that one was, you know, the Camorra was more like street, uh, more like a street gang type thing. That was one of the big problems in the Gambino family. When Castellano took over, Gotti, a Neapolitan, he thought Castellano wasn't a street guy. Mm, And he was Sicilian. So, as I say, they were more... They're a little bit more savvy. I, I suppose the Sicilian Mafia were a little bit more savvy because they, they weren't, uh, I suppose it's, it's like comparing the American Mafia with Irish mobs. I mean, Irish mobs, rah, rah, come, they, they don't care. They didn't care. Uh, you look at the Westie, you look at, what's his name, uh, in Boston, uh, White Boulders lot, they didn't care. They, they were ruthless, absolutely ruthless. And I think that was the same with the Sicilian and with the Neapolitans and the Camorra. I think that the Sicilian Mafia were slightly more laid back. They would consider stuff more. Uh, if you look at Maranzano, Maranzano, the way that he bought the, uh, I mean, it was Maranzano's kind of idea that Lucky Luciano took on, even though Lucky Luciano gets all the credit. It was actually so, uh, Maranzano, because and he was Sicilian. He bought that Sicilian kind of, organization if you like the organization of the sicilians to the table whereas the neapolitans and, and to a lesser extent obviously the calabrians because there wasn't many calabrians at that stage but um but the neapolitans were as i say more street ruffians they, they, right. they more- so the sicilians were the nerds all right we get it. they were the geeks yeah they were the geeks yeah <laughs> hey but uh, hey, that's a lot smarter. That's how they that like I said, they're way more known. They have even if the Camorra had like a big presence here in America, everybody knows like the La Nostra. Like that's they just they knew how to run a business. Like that was their shit. And if you take Riena, who I, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I see more as a terrorist than I do as an organized criminal. But if you take out Riena, the Sicilian Mafia weren't really at the forefront. It was Riena that brought them to the table. It was Riena that caused them to become, I suppose, the Italian government's number one target. Before that, it was kind of stuff that was going on behind the scenes. But as soon as Riena came to power, it was just an absolute animal. And that, I mean, 
he he just wiped out uh, Tommaso Bruschetta. Do you know Bruschetta actually committed suicide, tried to commit suicide or take his own life before being extradited from from Italy? It, from did yeah, he froze on me too. He froze up. All right. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully, he pops back on here soon. But who's hey, back? back. Am I back? Yep. Hey, sorry, guys. I don't know what I got pointed out to there. (laughs) So, Dan, he kind of brought up the Irish and uh, the the kind of rowdy style of gangster. And and you've been on a handful of these episodes since we're covering the Black Hand. You want to throw us a quick overview on the White Hand? Like, I think I compared it to the White Hand was the All Lives Matter. Like, they were (laughs) there in protest to the Black Hand. Like, that was it. Don't forget, there was also a terrorist organization from Serbia, the Black Hand. In not, I think it was 1911, just before the First World War, there was a lot of stuff going on. There was a Black Hand and a White Hand out in the former Republic of Yugoslavia as well. So, um, well, and typically, if you're, if, if you're doing research, if you don't put like Black Hand gang, that's what will actually yeah. come up first the Serbian Black Hand terrorist yeah. group. Well, and then another, I guess there was also a Black Hand in Spain. The Lomano Nero. Yeah. So well, now the yeah. Mexican cartel has uh, used the black hand too. There's a black hand like within the Mexican gangs. That's pretty big too. Yeah, my uh, my good friend uh, uh, Christian Cipollini, uh, lucky Luciano expert. He's doing a book on El Mano Negro, the assassin that's killed however many people he actually killed. But mentioning Spain, it just reminded me of another bit of research that I had up in respect to the Black Hand. And they said that the name Black Hand is of Spanish origin. And the organisation to which we referred was first described in 1889 by Arthur G. F. Griffiths, the English criminologist. Oh, back to the criminologist. That's a funny thing. In his work, Mysteries of Police and Crime, he wrote, not so, long, not so very long ago, since a widespread organization for evil was brought to light in Spain, the Society of the Black Hand, as it was called, in its origin, it consisted of missionaries who hoped to redress the balance between rich and poor. But it soon drew, drew down to it many desperados who gladly accepted the openings it offered for carrying on their original trade. It became a very extensive and numerous society existing in the provinces, each having its own center and our branches with a total of affiliated members exceeding 40,000. And when you think about it, they all kind of sound like the story of Robin Hood. Yeah. One last thing I want to hit on real quick, because we always talk a lot about New York and the mafia. And a lot of times we forget that one of the huge strangleholds where the mafia, we know it came from, is early on in New Orleans. Like mm-hmm. back to like the late 1800s, early 1900s. One of the other most well-known black hand operators, and I know Dave, I had heard you talking a little bit about him on a show. I think it might have been Wise Guys Hideaway, Silver Dollar Sam. Oh right, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, that was uh, Silvestro Carola. He was uh, he was, a real um, Carlos Michello's mentor. Yeah, and, and, uh, and when you look at what Carlos Michello did afterwards you can see what kind of mentor that he was. You know, when you look at, you know, Lupo the Wolf, you look at Silver Dollar, like Lupo the Wolf works with Giuseppe Morello, marries into the family, with now the Genovese family. You know, uh, Silver Dollar Sam was running black hand scams out of New Orleans, starts mentoring, you know, Marcelo, he becomes, 
you know, one of the biggest nationwide guys. And if he, he was born in New York, who knows how big he could have been. Well, I mean, uh, Johnny Torrio, uh, Al Capone, they were born in New York. Um, yeah. Because uh, as a 15-year-old boy, Al Capone and Lucky, uh, Lucky were, were mates, weren't they? They were in the same gang. You know, it's really crazy when you look at some of the biggest the guys that built Chicago into what it is. So you had Torrio, you had Capone, and Jack McGurn was basically a Brooklyn guy too. Mm. Was that Campania or whatever? Yeah, I, I suppose that I would assume the reason for that is with Ellis Island being in New York, that's where the boats landed. That's where the kind of um, um, emigration boats were landing. and That's where you were booked in. So I assume that anyone that was coming into America in those times landed at Ellis Island, therefore they begun in New York, and I suppose some stayed in New York and others. And then once you start getting past first generation and people were coming over then, they obviously they had families that were dotted about the US. So I assume, I assume, I'm not saying I'm right or wrong, but I assume that's the reason why a lot of people did start off in New York. Bringing it back to the black hand, I mean, when it comes to Joe uh, Turio and uh, Al Capone and stuff, they actually came to Chicago because Big Jim Colosimo was getting black hand threats against his businesses. And he brought in Turo and uh, and he brought in Al Capone and that built the whole Chicago like mob scene started in opposition to like a black hand extortion deal. Hey, big big Jim, he did what uh the Jewish would call build a he built a golem. He needed help, so he reached out to Johnny Torrio and brought him in, and he built a golem. Like, he got his help, and it worked. And next thing you know, he's dead on his restaurant floor, and now Torrio's in charge of the whole fucking thing. All right, well, I think that's about all we got. We're about at an hour here, so we probably should wrap this up. Before we go, do you guys got anything? Uh, Do you know what? All I I just want to say, once again, I absolutely love America, so I'm I'm not having a dig at American people. By the way, oh, that, isn't, that isn't in response to what you were saying, Dan. I because I do sometimes say it as it is, but I I really do want to wish everyone a, a, just a fantastic day tomorrow, Independence Day, and what an absolute honour it's been to be on this show with you two guys, Lock and Dan, and Bad Guy Podcast. I mean, just yeah, I, I've I've absolutely loved it. So thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, I would just say, say thank you. That's an hour because, like I said, I've been uh, checking out YouTube because that's what I do. You have a lot of stuff to plug, and I read a couple of your blogs. I tried to get into that, but like YouTube, I just type in your name and see what's on there. And so it's an honor to have you on here because now I feel like I know you. I've heard your story or whatever. And I would just like to plug uh, the main thing that I listen to uh, one of the first things that popped up on YouTube was Meet My Inspiration podcast that you were on. It's about an hour and a half long, and you got to tell your whole story and say what you, where you came from. And I know you have books, you have blogs, you have your own podcast, a lot of things. But I feel like if people want to just listen, it takes an hour and a half to really get to know what you're about and what how you feel about things. I, I really like that podcast. It's real good. And uh it's more that you hit on prison reform, but more like education and uh, a lot of uh, prehabilitation, as you called it, in your story of, you know, going to jail to straighten yourself out. And 
it was real good. And I think like that one podcast really tells your story and I really dig it, man. It was great to meet you. Thank you, bro. Thank you, bro. And one of the points of this is that I, I kind of speak to, in respect to the criminal justice system, I speak to the guys and girls that were like me, that are trapped in that system, not like people that just fed into the system once or anything like that, but someone that grew up in the system that, um, all I've done, I've come out of jail this time. Yes, I've got that education side of things, but it doesn't don't have to work towards degrees. Just being that ability to be able to read can change your life. Do you know what I mean? So there are different levels of education to be attained. But and all I've done is it's my mobile phone and my laptop. That's all I've done. And I've gone from being a prisoner. I was released in my last sentence in 2017. And with Mitzi Zeratto and the Best New True Crimes, Well-Managed Crooks and Criminals, I'm now an international published author. And here I am in an international podcast as well. So <laughs> love it. But and, and I do try and stay grounded because, as I say, I try and speak to this stuff. That one, there is hope, Just, but it starts with you. You've got to do it yourself. You've got to do it yourself. And once you begin to do it yourself and get that support around you because people need others to support them, um, the sky is the limit. The, the, the sky is the limit. Only you are putting the boundaries on what it is that you can achieve. So I removed those boundaries, and here we are. So, but thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. Hey, another one I think that you did was real good. Is you had that interview. I can't remember the guy's name, but he wrote the book. I believe is the Green Wall. Oh, uh, uh, Donald Vodica. He was the prison officer, the corrections officer from California. Who was in California at the time. He had to take his case to the California because prison officers in America are not allowed to basically tell their story once they finish. Um, so he had to go to the Supreme Court in order to get his story out to the world. And he, he did investigate a prison gang, which were prison officers known as the Green Wall. Um, DJ Vodica is his name. You can get it on uh, Amazon. But I've got the book here. It's an absolute incredible read. And it goes to show you as well, who are the criminals? Yeah. You know, who are the criminals? So that's why I love that interview so much, because if you listen to it and it's this great discussion about, you know, the prison system and, you know, education and reform and all these different things. And you're getting both sides from someone that, you know, their experience comes from as a prisoner and somebody who had an experience as a guard, you know, but that's what you need to do to make changes. You have to start opening up those discussions like that. And that's what. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Look, at the end of the day, I mean, if, if you've got a big table and you've got people coming to that table from all different walks of life, including people that have actually walked the wall with the academics, with the practitioners, with the policymakers, with the decision makers, between the, between the lot of you, you're going to find a solution. Um, as long as people leave their egos at the door, and they understand that it isn't about who's right. It's about what's right. And that's what we're trying to find, what's right. Don't give a fuck who's right. It's not about who gets credit or whatever. It's the same as this. I mean, in respect of organised crime, I don't ever say that I'm right. Or Everything's a theory. Like I said at the beginning, our research is blind faith. Um, unless we were actually there standing in that man's shoes, we don't really know what took place. So... Yeah, and that's the same with the criminal justice system. It's, it's, it's getting to understand, if you look at the mafia, you look at the mafia and you think, oh, there's just this violent organisation. But when you really start to research and get beneath the, 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 the skin of the mafia, there's all these different psychological things going on and criminological things going on. 
I think it's just such an interesting subject. And you get a different understanding. And once you start to understand things, it gives you a different perspective of things. And, and as I say, it starts to give you a little bit more empathy. And that's what we need in the world, a little bit more empathy. We, we, we need to celebrate our differences rather than allow them to divide us. Well, I think that's a, that's a well said. That's a better note to end on than anything stupid I'm going to say after that. So thanks for coming on. It was good having a drink with you. This is Say Hello to yeah. the Next Guy. Thanks for coming. Cheers. And for listening. Cheers. Salute. To the bad guy, bad guy. the good guy coming last place. Last Smell place. that dope when I pass by. Oh. I let my money at a fast pace. Say hello to the bad guy. To be dad, spent my birthdays in the trap. We had to work with what we had. She been working on a raise while trying to raise me like a man. Plus, my daddy in the box and all my cousins in the camera. And I don't need a hundred friends. I just want a hundred bands, a hundred jugs, a hundred scams. Hey, hey. So, I don't money grabbed a hundred hams. So, I don't money grabbed a bunch of bands. And I ain't wanna fall victim to that system or the business. Fuck a judge with a grudge. I'm blowing crud for my mental life. Ay, and I still keep it on me, run into your big homie, first you meet your dead homie, ay, yeah. Say hello to the bad guy, ay, the good guy coming last place. You smell that dope when I pass by. Ay, I like my money at a fast pace. And her ass fake And she in love with the bad guy But bad bitches never act right She act up into that bag fly She did a turn around in one night Say hello to the bad guy The good guy coming last place You smell that dope when I pass by I let my money at a fast pace Say hello to the bad guy 